C.S. Lewis uh, responding to a critic that said he didn't care much, Lewis didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount, said, if caring for means liking or enjoying it, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly think, Lewis continues, of a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read the Sermon on the Mount with tranquil pleasure. See, the Sermon on the Mount will either confirm us in our deadly spiritual condition or it will shatter you. And today we come to another opportunity, and it is a gift of mercy, another divine opportunity to be, in Lewis's words, knocked flat on our faces by the sledgehammer. This is our final sermon on Jesus' exposition of the law in Matthew chapter 5, and the text is verses 43 through 48. This is the sixth and final antithesis. You know, those, those little chunks of text where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This is the sixth of those. We'll make four points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The error, the correction, the rebuke, the standard. So, first the error. So, we begin here as usual with Jesus citing what they apparently, apparently have commonly heard. You have heard that it was said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we have here for the first time an actual distortion of the law. Up until this point, the you have heard it said portions have simply quoted the law or a reasonable summary of the law. Here, though, we have a you have heard it said, which is seriously corrupted. It's corrupt in two ways. It's corrupt by what it omits, and more importantly, by what it adds. What it omits when it cites love your neighbor, right? the love your neighbor command, which comes, by the way, from Leviticus 19. We heard it in the Old Testament lesson. What it omits is the as yourself part. That is what makes the command to love one's neighbor demanding that little as yourself part. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, while that absence is significant, right, it's what they add which is the real problem. Love your neighbor and, they add, hate your enemy. What they are trying to do, and we all have this tendency by nature... They are trying to restrict the sphere of who counts as a neighbor. Surely those people cannot be neighbors. I mean, everybody has to draw the circle and the boundary somewhere, and those people over there, they must fall outside of it. So they're seeking to make this command, which is about how to love, into a command about who to love. This is a natural instinct of human beings, often done for protection, often done without thinking, actually. But people who do this always have their texts, quite 
probably the people whom Jesus is speaking to would point out that in the immediate context of Leviticus 19, the ones addressed are the house of Israel. Do not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, loving the Jews, loving one's kin, loving one's nation, that is fine. But the implications must be that we are then free to hate our enemies. After all, aren't our enemies God's enemies? And certainly this is the way Jesus' listeners would have viewed the Roman state and its collaborators. But as mentioned, this is a gross distortion of the law. It has a sort of, on the face of it, plausibility. But in that same chapter in Leviticus 19, where the love your neighbor command comes from, laws are given, right? Laws are given to provide gleanings for the poor and for the sojourner. In that same chapter, the alien living with you must be treated as native-born. Love him as yourself. Notice that. Love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt. The law in Exodus says that if you see your enemy's ox straying, you are to return it to him. If you see your enemy's ox under a heavy burden, you are to help it. Right? Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And that's the text which you heard Paul cite in the Romans 12 New Testament lesson. There shall be one law, Exodus 12 says. For the native-born and for the alien. No double standards, one law. So, this is there in the Torah. But nevertheless, somehow, the Jews of Jesus' day have apparently come to believe, and again, this is the natural human instinct, that love stops at the borders of family or nation, or perhaps the covenant community. We love those in our circle. We can treat those outside with contempt and disdain. How this happened, we don't really know except to say it's the natural instinct. But it happened clearly at least by a selective reading of the Torah. Maybe it was the imprecatory Psalms. Psalms which call down judgment on enemies. Though those are not pleas for personal vengeance. It is Christ who is often, if not always, the speaker of those psalms. And in him there's no taint of malice. Those are psalms which find their fulfillment in the prayers of the martyrs and in the cry for the kingdom to come. Maybe it was the wars against the Canaanites or any or all of Israel's military expeditions. Whatever it was, they had come to believe that it was downright patriotic to hate their enemies. And Jesus will have none of this. He will have none of this. And when you touch people here, they react. In Luke's gospel, 
Jesus tells this famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I preached a whole series on the parables here a few years ago, but I can tell you that of all of them, this is probably my favorite. It is certainly the most lethal and dangerous parable Jesus ever told, and generally he tells parables that get everybody angry. But this is a parable which, if you tell it, can get you killed. And he tells this parable in answer to precisely this question. Who is my neighbor? And it's clear that he thinks the neighbor can be an enemy, a hated and despised enemy, right? Some, and the, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was full of racial and ethnic and religious animosity going back centuries. And so Jesus not only picks a Samaritan to be a neighbor, he picks the Samaritan to be the hero of the parable. It would be as if I told you a parable today and it was called the parable of the good jihadist. I suspect some of you might be upset about that. Jesus thinks the neighbor is an enemy. It's any human being in your sphere of influence. He rejects. He rejects the friends and family neighbor plan. He universalizes the idea of the neighbor. And we are naturally resistant to this. So that's what they've heard. You love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Secondly, then, the correction. Now Jesus says, shockingly, but I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So he's not, like, he's not simply rejecting hatred. But he doesn't, he doesn't call for a sort of benign detachment to your enemies. He doesn't say, look, don't get riled up about your enemies. Don't let your enemies get under your skin. He calls us to love them. Present imperative. Love your enemies. Not sporadic, consistent, perpetual, sustained love of the enemy. Now, I want to say four things, four things about this love. First, it has to entail some genuine emotion, some true desire for the good of our enemies. Think of the moral distance we have to traverse in our hearts and minds and souls to get here. It's not just don't hate your enemies. It's love your enemies. And this love must entail some genuine desire for their good. Love is not simply a feeling. But it does entail a genuine, heartfelt desire, a willing for the other's good. And surely Jesus, who is the great example here, did not merely love his enemies with a sort of cold, external detachment. He loved them from the heart. He wept over them. And desire their peace. That's what he did over the city of Jerusalem, which was about to kill him in a spasm of bloodlust and rage. So, again, this is not tolerate your enemies. The second thing about this love is that it acts. Now, you may know Luke has a version of the Beatitudes in his gospel. And in in this same passage, Luke says this, we are to do good to those who hate us. 
Right? As, as the proverb said, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is concrete, practical love for the enemy. And again, this command, we should ask ourselves this about the Sermon on the Mount, I think. Is Jesus just trying to set the bar super high, you know, because he likes to frustrate us or he wants to drive us to the gospel? This command is rooted in the nature of Christian existence. It's rooted in the nature of what the gospel is, in the atoning agony of Jesus himself. For while we were yet enemies, he demonstrated the love of God toward us by dying. So it turns out that this this type of command, as hard and as difficult as humanly impossible as it seems to us, is not some sort of free-floating piece of ethical wisdom from Jesus, the great ethical teacher. It's rooted in who he is and what he's done. People who hate their enemies have amnesia about their own enemy status. And thus they are people who have forgotten the gospel itself. You can be a wonderful Christian, sit out there, people could think you're fantastic. But if you hate your enemies, you have not just failed at some fringe point of Christian existence. You've forgotten the very gospel. And third, notice this. This love is revealed in speech toward or about our enemies. How do you talk about your enemies in private? Your political enemies, your personal enemies, your cultural enemies. Again, from Luke's version, notice this. Bless those who persecute you. This is love which positively calls down the benediction of God on those who are assailing us. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. This is a speech act. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We ought to practice this in all the various little slights and indignities we suffer in life. We must create, we must be the bearers of a culture of benediction. A culture of the speech which blesses. Not a culture of cursing or a culture of criticism or a culture of judgment. We must especially create a culture of benediction toward those who hate us. Fourth, this love prays for its enemies. Chrysostom, the 5th century bishop of Constantinople, says this is the highest summit of self-control. Bonhoeffer calls this the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, Bonhoeffer says, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. So this is not some sort of perfunctory thing, like I managed to get out a prayer for my enemy. Again, the model is Jesus, who prayed while spikes were being driven into his hands and feet. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So this love is first from the heart. Second, it acts. Third, it speaks or blesses. And finally, at the summit, it prays. 
It goes and stands on the side of the enemy, lifts them up before the face of God. Imitating him who in his anguish prayed for his enemies. So this is the active love. Which fleshes out further what we saw last week about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. Those commands were not, we saw, nearly as passive as one might think. They are, in fact, a form of active resistance. Last week we said they are a revolutionary way of being revolutionary. There's the Essene way of being revolutionary, separate from all evil and go out in the desert. There's the zealot way of being revolutionary, armed rebellion and resistance. There's the pharisaical way of being revolutionary, double and triple down on tradition, a kind of hyper-religious conservatism. There's a Sadducee way of being a, a revolutionary, a kind of liberal accommodation to the, the ethos of the time. And then there's Jesus' way of being revolutionary, which is this. His is a revolutionary way of being revolutionary. And the active nature of this nonviolent resistance is on full view in our text here. We are to do this, Jesus says. Now, here, notice. He says we are to do this not so that we can be among the elite Christians or that we can be a sort of grade A Christian and not like those grade B Christians. He says we are to do this so that we might be children of our Father in heaven. So you can opt out of this kind of disposition to your enemy if you want. If you do, you just can't be a child of your heavenly Father. We are to do this so that you, look at that in the text, so that they might be children of their Father in heaven. This is how you demonstrate. This is how you prove your sonship. This is, if you will, the way you show the family traits. It's relatively easy to come to church and sing hymns. Doing this is where you show who your father is, the family resemblance. You can hate your enemy. You can refuse to pray for them, and people will think you're a noble Christian. We do this because, Jesus says, this is the general, daily, constant, persistent way that God behaves. And you can see it in the text. He says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When's the last time you stood in the rain and thought, this is my Father in heaven pouring out his goodness and love on his enemies? Giving them fruitful seasons, food, refreshment. When we think of God's love for his enemies, rightly, I think, we think of Jesus' example on the cross, right? He prayed for his enemies there. But Jesus points us to his Father's work. The rising of the sun, The sending of rain. That's sort of the liturgical dance of the creation is a display of this love. What theologians call common grace because it's common to all. It's indiscriminate in its generosity. I mean, can you imagine if we were God? There'd be just a little less rain on that house than there is on this house. Maybe there'd be maybe a little flood over here because this guy hates me. A little less sunshine over there. Turn up the pressure over here. What's with giving rainfall and sunshine indiscriminately to everybody? 
That seems promiscuous and unwise. As an act, then, I mean, that's a high standard. Right? As an act of divine imitation, our love cannot be withheld from. It cannot exclude. It cannot even be partial. It cannot be diminished toward the enemy or the unrighteous. To do so is to signal that you are not in the Father's family. The third point, then, here is the rebuke. Verse 46, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even sinners, here he means Gentiles, dogs as the Jews called them. Right? We've, we've got, we always, the human race has always created names for those on the other side of the divide. Dogs, even Gentiles, sinners, dogs, they love those who love them. Are not even the tax collectors, those unclean traitors, those greedy, Roman-loving extortioners, are, are not even they doing that? I mean, even jihadists love their families. Mafia members love their families. The Nazis love their friends. There's no righteousness in that which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's no righteousness in the, of the kingdom of heaven unveiled there. And if you greet only your own people, Jesus says, and greet here means more than hello, right? It includes a kind of embrace, a wishing of them well. If you're only doing that to your own people, he says, what are you doing more than others? Right? Indeed, greeting and loving one's own, one's friends, while it is a good thing, it can definitely be a form of self-love. One can be an egocentric narcissist and still greet and love one's friends. It's not that hard. It happens every day. Even the pagans do that, Jesus says. Right? And then if this is how we live, love our side, hate their side, then notice what Jesus is saying about us. He's saying that our righteousness is on the level of those we deem the least righteous. Sinners, pagans, Gentiles. In the first century, that meant the pagans and the sellout, tax-collecting Jews. Today, it would be unbelievers and those we perceive as religious compromisers. Or people of a different political party from us. If you, if you live this way, your righteousness is on the level of the people you despise. And there's a, there's a key word here I don't want you to miss in this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of tucked away in verse 47. And it's the word, more. What more are you doing than others, Jesus says. How exactly does loving only your close relations exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees or the righteousness of anybody for that matter. Right? This more here is the Christian distinctive. It is what the Father does. It is what Jesus did. And it is to be seen in that very inclusive, promiscuous, unbounded love and generosity of God shown toward us and then wrought out in us 
Yes, yes, we are to love our kin, of course. Almost everybody who's not a sociopath does that. We are to love our nation. We are to love our church. We are to do these things even in unique and tender ways, not uncritically, but with generosity. None of that's in dispute here. But Jesus rarely stops and tries to be super balanced. You may have noticed that. After all, this is a sledgehammer. But we're called then to this radical revolutionary more. What makes us peculiar peculiar is this beyond all that. You know, you can do this concretely. I mentioned this last week. These are very concrete things. You can start to show it in how we react, what we do when our friends or our brethren say or do something that makes them sort of a kind of temporary enemy. We have a hard time implementing these commands even in that situation. Somebody slights us or crosses us, right? Jesus is saying, do good to them. Speak blessing to them. Pronounce a benediction over their life. Pray to God. Go to them. Bring them with you before the face of God and pray for them. Start there. So finally, here the standard. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a pretty high bar. That's the highest ethical standard ever presented to the human race. Basically, this call to love is a call to imitate God himself, the Father especially. And as we imitate him, we become more like him. For we are creatures who become what we mimic. It's true, perfection does not mean we're going to attain to sinless perfection in this life. Jesus is about to tell the disciples to pray daily for the forgiveness of their sins. But perfect here does mean to reflect the love of God in the way the text has just called us to. Luke Luke summarizes it again, and it gets at this point well. Luke says this in the same spot in his Beatitudes. He says, be merciful, even as, notice that, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. All of this is there, beloved, in the Beatitude on mercy, by the way. Because all of these virtues stand or fall together. You can't have one of these without the others. You either have all the Beatitudes, or you probably have none of them. You're going to increase in all of them together. So imitate this inclusive, non-discriminating, all-embracing love and goodness of the Father for his enemies. Now, again, the Father knows their enemies. When I say non-discriminating, I don't mean that God doesn't understand the moral status of his enemies. Of course not. Neither does Jesus. Nevertheless, the question is, how do we behave toward them? We are to imitate the Father's goodness. I want you to notice, we're at the end of these six antitheses. God himself, in Jesus Christ, does all of them. Right? He's unstained by unjust anger. He keeps his oath. He's faithful to his covenant. He gives to those who dishonor them. He loves his enemies. We're summoned, then, to reflect his fullness of perfection. 
And that means we're summoned to a love that's extended freely and at great cost to all, even your enemies. This is, of course, an impossible command, humanly. It does, in that sense, drive us to the cross and the gospel and our need for help and our need for grace. Right? There are two responses to this that we have to avoid. One would be, yeah, I'll take a shot at it. I think I, I, think I can get most of it. That would, be a kind of, that would induce self-righteousness. The other would be a kind of despair that says nobody can do this. We want to go into the cross and recognize the need for grace. This is the embodiment of the way of the cross. We've said this a lot through this series, but I want to say it again. What Jesus did on the cross, we are very good at accepting that for us. That delivers us from sin, from the powers, from death. Praise be to God. We are less good at seeing that as the pattern which we are to ethically follow and embody in the world. What Bonhoeffer called the differential of the Christian religion. We have to be careful, right, that we don't rip the cross out. Because to rip it out is to rip the guts of Christian ethics out, and then you're left with an ideology or some sort of moralism. What Jesus did, only Jesus could do. That's true. He did it as God incarnate for us in our place. And yet, nevertheless, mysteriously, through your baptism, he calls you into a kind of imitation of the pattern he left behind. One commentator said this, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Right? And reflecting the divine, the Father, is the Christian calling. It is what must be done if you are to be a child of your Heavenly Father. Chrysostom, who I've already mentioned, the 5th century father, he takes these last two weeks' texts that we've looked at, and he traces what he calls nine ascending steps of the imitation of God in confrontation with an enemy. He summarizes these last two weeks. He says, we take no, one, we take no evil initiative ourselves. Two, we do not avenge evil. Three, we suffer in silence. Four, we suffer wrongfully. Five, we surrender to the evildoer even more than he demands. Six, we must not hate him. Seven, we must love him. Eight, we must do good to him. And nine, the summit, we must entreat God himself on his behalf. This has always been the teaching of the church. There you have it from Chrysostom in the 5th century. We must move then from non-resistance to love. You thought last week's sermon was hard? We must move from non-resistance to love of the enemy and the persecutor. Notice that. Pray for those who persecute you. These are not abstract enemies or people that you're in a social tussle with. Augustine says about this movement, from non-resistance to love, Augustine says, many have learned to offer the other cheek. He must be joking, right? I mean, when he says these things. I'm not sure who he's referring to. But in his day, apparently there were Christians who had already learned to offer the other cheek. 
But Augustine says, many have learned to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. I wonder how we're doing on both counts. One, offering the other cheek, and then loving the person who struck you. This love of enemy, Jesus places as the sixth antithesis, the final example of the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. This is the summit of Christian ethics. It is the epitome of Christ-likeness. It is imitation of our Father. And the history of the church is offering nothing other than a closing of oneself off from this commandment. So I charge you to hear it afresh, to let it jolt you, not to domesticate it. Don't what about it to death. What about if someone comes in and my kid's here and my wife's there? Right, you get this all, I, I gave those caveats last week. If you were here for last week's sermon, I made about 10 caveats. But we have the danger of cutting a text like this into pieces with dozens of qualifications. And usually what happens, it's interesting, if you listen to someone who does this, at the end when they're done, you know what they have? They have what I would call the anti-sermon on the mount. Oh, so we don't actually have to turn our cheek in situations with matter. So we don't have to go the second mile. So we can hit back. They literally end up with the opposite of the text. We have a way of doing this. Don't cut the text in pieces. Polycarp, the second century martyr, right, burned at the stake as an 85-year-old man, a disciple who knew John the Apostle, in his letter to the Philippian church, shows how deep this teaching was absorbed in the early church. He writes, pray for all the saints. Pray also for kings and powers and rulers, and for those who persecute you and hate you, and for the enemies of the cross in order that your fruit may be evident among all people, that you may be perfect in him. That's a pretty good authority, Polycarp. Through the church, from the 2nd to the 21st century, the radical summons of our Lord, the sledgehammer, rings out. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. For thus we shall be children, sons and daughters who bear the likeness, who reflect the perfection of our Heavenly Father. Amen.